кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. A prominent Russian pro-war blogger is killed in a bombing in a St. Petersburg cafe. An anti-war activist is arrested as authorities in Moscow allege a broad and improbable conspiracy involving Ukrainian intelligence services and imprisoned Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. So what is going on? A successful operation against a high-profile pro-Kremlin propagandist, an internal power struggle within Russia's party of war, or a carefully crafted false flag operation? Well, I got just the guests to help us unpack this, as well as the recent arrest of an American journalist by Russian authorities. So stick around. Hello from the studios of UTA Radio, where I am temporarily embedded, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city Vilnius is my old friend Konstantin Eckert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. Welcome back, Kostya. It's always great to see you. Hello. And also joining us from across the Atlantic, from Germany's awesome capital, Berlin, is somebody I have long wanted to get on the program, Mikhail Zigar, a columnist for Der Spiegel and the founding editor-in-chief of the Russian news TV channel, Gusht, and author of the must-read book, All the Kremlin's Men. Welcome to The Vertical, Mikhail. It's great to finally get you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So what do we, what do we make of the events of the past week? The bombing that, that killed Vladin Tatarsky, which is the pen name, of course, of the prominent blogger Maxim Fomin, took place in the Street Food Bar Number no. 1 Cafe, which is located near St. Petersburg State University and which was formerly owned by the Kremlin-connected oligarchy of Geny Prigozhin. The day after the assassination, Vladimir Putin posthumously awarded Tatarsky the Russian State Order of Courage. And the following day, Russian authorities arrested anti-war activist Daria Trepova and charged her with terrorism, alleging that she was acting on the instructions of Ukrainian intelligence and, wait for it, Alexei Navalny. The Institute for the Study of War in D.C. has suggested that the bombing was a warning to other Russian commentators to temper their criticism of the conduct of the war or a threat to Wagner-aligned actors who could pose threats to Putin. But from where I sit, this looks at least as probable as the official explanation. In fact, the first thing that I thought of when I heard the official version was the December 1934 assassin of Leningrad Communist Party boss Sergei Kirov, which Joseph Stalin, of course, orchestrated and then used as a pretext to eliminate political enemies. Kostya, I know you love a good conspiracy. What is your take on this? Well, actually, I love them to debunk them, uh, but uh, I, but uh, frankly, uh, I think, and here I may disappoint you, um, I think the Kremlin doesn't need today any kind of uh, um, super duper provocation to arrest whomever they want, to imprison whomever they want, and to do anything they want to any remaining remnant of uh, this civic society. Uh, my feeling is that there is something there that I think has nothing to do with uh, uh, Navalny or the non-existent anti-war movement uh, in Russia. It has probably, if, if, if it was my guess, something to do with uh, some kind of uh, clan power struggles mm -hmm. uh, inside, um, inside the ruling clique in Russia, which is quite normal. And uh, which does resemble a lot of crisis in uh, in the uh, history of Russia and the Soviet Union. But uh, the Kirov murder, and as they say, you know, just remember this tweet: uh, the Kirov murder. It is not. Mm, okay. No, uh, fair enough. It's just it's the first thing that popped into my mind when I read the official version. 
And I said, they're blaming this on the Ukrainians. They're blaming it on Navalny. I was expecting there to be some kind of American angle in there somewhere, maybe. Um, I, I, I was surprised not to see that. But that's the first thing to pop into my mind. I honestly, I don't know what to make of this. I honestly don't know what to make of this. I do not think that the Ukrainians have the assets to do something like this. Um, I really don't. Um, it would really speak very, very well of the SBU and of Ukrainian intelligence if they could pull something like this off in the heart of St. Petersburg in Putin's hometown. That would really that would really say a lot about them. But I just doubt that. So I'm left with two versions here: false flag or Vnutrinaya Razborka. Those are the only two things I can uh, kind of think uh, of. I, may, may I add something? I, I actually disagree with you. On seems like this is this kind of podcast, man. I will disagree. Excellent. With you. We're going to disagree. Uh, this is cool. I think that there is. Uh, I don't know whether. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, finally we have a BBC-style discussion uh, and all this kind of uh, thing, which which is becoming increasingly, increasingly, uh, uh, well, it has become already uh, the norm when everyone agrees mm-hmm. about the, the the topic of debate. But coming back to what I wanted to say is that, frankly, I would not denigrate uh, the Ukrainian U- Ukraine capacity for doing something. It's another matter whether the Ukrainians, if they have any kind of uh, uh, assets that could execute such an operation, whether they will do it in such a way mm-hmm. and whether they will spend their resources on someone like uh, Vadim Tatarsky, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that if you possess, uh, and I'm sure that they, they should have some kind of uh, uh, some kind of network on the ground, probably not a huge one, but they should. Uh, I think that I would not spend my effort, mm-hmm. my assets, uh, my blood and treasure on this kind of target i would go for someone much more high profile or maybe even if it is like a media figure or something is someone who signifies to much sort of to much sharper uh, in a much sharper way um connection to the kremlin um and the ability to reach inside the heart and squeeze with an iron hand the heart of the russian power machine yeah, no, I agree. And this, I, I can't help also but think of the, the assassination of Daria Dugina back in back in August of 22. But we're, and we're going to get to that. But I want to bring Mikhail into the conversation. Mikhail, you, you literally wrote the book on Kremlin intrigue, a book that everybody should read. And I'm looking forward to your next one. What do you see going on here? You know, it's funny that uh, the day when it happened, um, um, just that very day, I was participating in the uh, journalist conference in Berlin. And um, some very important figures from uh, anti-corruption foundation of Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation, including awesome uh, Maria Pevche, who is mm-hmm. the acting head of uh, of that foundation, were present there. And I saw literally Maria Pevche's face the moment when she she uh, read the news about the assassination, and then that that she is to blame mm-hmm. uh, by FSB uh, for organization of. of that terror attack and actually yes she was a bit perplexed with the fact that that um uh, instead of uh, um making investigations uh, she supposedly had to to organize some some crime in in st petersburg so so that's that's uh, something that th- that's probably the only ridiculous uh point in uh, uh, in all those facts um there is another very um, interesting fact, and uh, as Kostya has already mentioned, uh, Vladimir Tatarsky is no one. Right. Uh, he's not an important figure. He probably might have been a popular telegram, uh, owner of the popular telegram channel, but actually the number of uh, subscribers of his telegram channel is like 500,000. And that's, that's not a big deal for a, a that patriotic telegram mm-hmm. channel. He was fa- famous for only one thing, for one uh, infamous video that, that right. uh, his self-made video that he uh, he made back in September, uh, after the the infamous decree of President Putin when he accepted uh, four Ukrainian regions into Russia, and there was a huge uh, event in Kremlin and Vladimir uh, Tatarsky made that video uh, walking th- uh, through the, uh, the, the Kremlin, corridors yeah. of uh, of Kremlin Palace saying okay now we will win uh we will kill everyone uh we will um uh, rob everyone as we usually love to do uh god bless us 
and that that was the most outrageous video that made him famous so he was not the influential figure he was uh, he was uh, was the z uh, z patriot with the worst reputation right. so who, who uh, why why ukrainian uh, security forces um should um should have killed that person yeah, no, I agree with Kostya. If the Ukrainians have the assets to pull off something like this, and Kostya, I don't, re- I don't dismiss that they might, right? I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't want to disgr- uh, de- degrade the SBU or the Ukrainian intelligence service. But why waste it on this guy, right? Why waste it on this guy? Yeah. Um, and this is th- this is this is the question I kept coming back to. Now, Mikhail, you you, I mean, I, I'm interested in your first. What, what is your first reaction to this? What was your what was you what was your version of events? What do you what do you see? I mean, we know none of us know. We're all speculating, right? We're all connecting data points. But what do you? What was your first instinct? What did it say? Did it say internal my power struggle, instinct, false flag? My first instinct was that we haven't heard for a long period of time uh, anything from Yevgeny Prigozhin, mm-hmm. and here, here we have blogger close to Prigozhin, mm-hmm. obviously paid by Prigozhin, attending Prigozhin's cafe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the probably one of the most prominent bloggers who supported Prigozhin. So if he is killed, um, probably that would benefit. Uh, probably Mr. Prigozhin would benefit from it. Uh-huh. So you see this as, as related to Prigozhin's kind of the internal power struggle between Prigozhin and the Ministry of why, Defense and Sergei Shoigu. Why, why, why not? And and if it's if it could be considered to be part of the power struggle between those two clans, uh, that assassination is uh, totally in favor of Prigozhin, not in favor of Minister of Defense. Uh huh. So have so 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 having Tatarsky killed benefits Prigozhin. How, how is this so? Mm, that shows that he he was important. Mm. That he really ah, important. That, so it that, elevates. That okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His person are um, so effective propagandists. His uh, war reporters are so hated by by the enemies that made them mm. that makes them uh, more mm, more valuable right. in the eyes of the superiors because that's because the interesting thing about that is some of the commentary here on this side of the atlantic is that this is maybe a, a message to to brigosian to cut it out to stop it this is a threat to him and you're saying this is a, an effort to elevate brigosian i mean it's again when we're when we're dealing with these kind of events in russia there are always conspiracies on top of conspiracies and it's kind of hard to to, yeah. to, to, to yeah, peel yeah. back the layers of the onion to figure out what is going on not some deal costio what do you what do you think of that version this is an effort to elevate brigosian in, in in his uh, side of this power struggle look we've seen how the the, this this uh, attempt, successful attempt on the life of uh, uh, Mr. Tatarsky was organized. Uh, there are there are several videos of right. how he he's being handed uh, this uh, strange sculpture, this bust, uh, right. and then it explodes. Like if you wanted to kill Prigozhin, uh, for example, which probably would be the only uh, the only thing. I would say, I would do if I were engaged in a power struggle with him. I will go straight for him, mm-hmm. uh, because if you try to kill someone close to him, then you don't know what the reaction will be. Mm-hmm. Then, if so, then then this this uh, killing was not organized. Right. We see it. It's not designed to kill Prigozhin. It's designed to kill whoever is closest to this sculpture. Mm-hmm. So I would. Here and here, we do not have a classic BBC debate. I would rather side with Mikhail. No, if it had something to do with internal power struggle, uh, then definitely uh, it shows. I mean, it's very simple logic. If Prigozhin's people are killed, then Prigozhin and his people are important. Mm-hmm. If the uh, if the trail leads not to someone in uh, Kiev, but rather to someone in Moscow or St. Petersburg, then uh, you can say, look, Vladimir Vladimirovich, these people are trying to fight me. Yeah, maybe we have disagreements, but they're undermining our united front in this uh, epochal moment 
of a fight against Ukraine. So you have to punish them. So I'm uh, doing the right thing. Gotcha. Let me and Go let ahead, me Michael. and let me add one more thing. Uh, one of the last uh, posts written by by uh, Vladimir Tatarsky before his uh, assassination, he was um, he made a forecast about the new offensive of the Ukrainian forces, and he he uh, foresaw that after Easter there should be a huge offensive of Ukrainians, mm -hmm. and then he added that uh, most officers from the Ministry of Defense should be sent. To the battalions of Wagner, because only battalions of Wagner are uh, uh -huh. capable to um, to stop that offensive. So that's that's like his last will. Uh huh. Now this is exactly. Well, you know, judging 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 by my um, reminiscences of my three years of uh, national service and looking at what goes on now, I'd say that that's a rare moment when I'm in full solidarity with Vladimir Tatarsky. This is precisely why I wanted to have the two of you on this, because I've been spending the last week trying to figure this out. Journalists have been calling me, asking me to comment on this, and now I have intelligent things to say because I'm talking to you two gentlemen. Um, I want to kind of broaden this out now and kind of look at how the war, the effect the war is having on the Russian elite. Um, there's been a lot of speculation about this. Um, I want to have some informed speculation about this. And again, Mikhail, this is your, this is your wheelhouse. Um, this is what your, this is what your, your, your book was about the Russian elite and the clan struggles within it. What do you see? I mean, is this as simple as Prihojin and Sergei Shoigu? I mean, Prihojin and his allies on one side and Shoigu and his on the other? Or is there something more sophisticated and nuanced and layered going on here? Mm, yeah, I think it's really sophisticated because I need to ask you, uh, you probably have heard, but not uh, every listener of your pad, of your podcast have heard of another Prigozhin, Prigozhin yes. II, yes. a man named Yosif Prigozhin, who is a music producer, yes. and he is the new symbol of, um, of what's happening uh, inside the elite because he gave us the perfect uh, evidence of what is really happening. Uh, about um, a week ago or two weeks ago already, someone ha has published the, the overheard conversation between uh, that Prigozhin number two, who is not a relative of uh, uh, Evgeny Prigozhin, just a namesake, uh, uh, with um, with an oligarch of uh, Azerbaijani uh, mm -hmm. um, citizenship, yes. yeah, and. Uh, and that that is the beautiful monument for the, for the uh, mood of Russian elite. They are sw swearing and cursing Putin and calling uh, calling him a Satan. And they they are really uh, miserable because uh, they they keep on um, repeating that he has lost everything. That's a terrible catastrophe. We have lost everything we we had. We had such a such, such a beautiful life and. Right for what why why have we lost it all so and that that's the the biggest part of russia that's the mood of the biggest part of russian elite definitely there there is another part that um was crying that way a year ago mm -hmm. and and now they are a bit better because they were expecting the economy to collapse they were expecting the isolation to be total they were expecting the the uh, the, the oil uh, flow to be stopped, um, but now it's not that bad. The oil is being sold. The um, the economy has not collapsed. So so it's more or less um, uh, the mood of of Russian elite has more or less sta stabilized. So they they are not dying. And they they are even thinking some some of them some of them the, the closer um, part, clans of Russian elite uh, the. the the clans which are closer to Putin, they think that the time is on their side. Mm -hmm. And so the more they wait, the less support Ukrainians are are going to have. So so it's okay, it's okay to wait and it's okay to have that long war. But the majority of, uh, of the elite who really had everything and uh, lost almost everything, they are still shocked and they are going to be shocked for 
for the rest of their lives. So if I'm hearing you correctly, this is kind of like Prigozhin versus Prigozhin. I mean, the one Prigozhin is saying we want to go back to pre-February 2022, and the other Prigozhin is like we want a military parade on the Khrushchev and nothing less. Um, And this is the way... uh, That's that's, that's the the new two-headed Russian eagle. Right. Prigozhin and... Yeah. That's a a great way to look at it. Kostya, your thoughts, because I've been been thinking about this for a while, and I've, I've, I've kind of and I've said this before on the podcast, that Putin's kind of put himself in an impossible position here because he's pleasing nobody, right? Um, Prigozhin number one wants to go back to the pre-February 2022 world that ain't, that's not happening. Just that, that is not going to happen. And Prigozhin number two wants the military parade on the Khrushchev. That is not happening. And Putin is in this weird spot where he's pleasing nobody. Is he in, is he in trouble? Um, it's a very good question to which I don't think any of us, or actually probably even anyone in Moscow, uh, has a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. But uh, it this conversation, which uh, was overheard by someone who really wanted to <laughs> let the world know about it, yep. uh, shows us that to some extent, and I do believe it's a genuine conversation, um, shows us that uh, Putin is maybe on the way to losing his most important function inside the Russian system, which also was, at a certain point in time, his predecessor, Boris Yeltsin's function. That is to be the arbiter and balancer between different clans inside the system. So he seems to be losing this uh, this particular role. And I think that although it's not yet the moment when he's lost it. But um, what we see now is, if you wish, an approaching exam, an approaching test Mm -hmm. for the system which he created, uh, which he was running for nearly a quarter of a century now, which is based on the balance of corruption and fear. Mm -hmm. And a question is now whether there will be enough corruption. And I think there still will be enough, by the way. There will still be enough money to steal. Mm. But whether fear is going to continue working as it did before. And I'm afraid that lots of stuff that's been mulling around under the rumor mill is starting to resemble to me. Uh, what we remember from the early 1990s, what I remember from mm-hmm. the early 1990s, definitely. And that is like, maybe the 2024 so-called elections are not going to happen. Mm. Rumors that Patrushev is actually for taking over the reins, well, not him, but him taking over the reins for Putin to take... Well, it's not for nothing that we hear about Patrushev saying that the sector of the Security Council and one of the closest people to Putin uh, allegedly uh, saying or allegedly planning a cancellation mm-hmm. of the uh, 2024 so-called elections so that there will be under the pretext of... of, of I've been wondering when they were going to finally like, do can this. Can I intervene? Yeah. No, 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 what I want to say is can that... I intervene? I don't, I, don't, I don't mean that Patrushev thinks about probably he doesn't even know about it. But what I mean is that the rumor mill is now really the rumor mill of a major crisis of the regime. Mm. It's not wishful thinking. I do believe that Putin's system still has quite a bit of reserves on which to survive for quite some time. But the the, the mere fact that we now have this uh, whiff of the, if you wish, 1995 right. in the air, mm-hmm. or 1916 Petrograd, right. um, that to me is a testimony that this system is being tested. Maybe it will survive the test, mm. but it is being tested. And the, the, the conversation is definitely reflecting what a lot of people think. And the question is, when will this fear, uh, will this fear be overcome? Right. And if it will be, then when? Yeah, no, it's like when you have a dis- uh, disaffected elite and an absence of fear, then you have political change in Russia. Mikhail, I know you wanted to jump in. The microphone's yours. Yes, yes, we're, we're back to BBC because I, I must disagree with, with <laughs> Kostya. Um, because I... There is one thing, only one thing I'm 100% sure of, is that um, the 2024 presidential election are going to happen. Mm-hmm. Because that's the only, 
the only sense of living, uh, the, the only reason to live for the huge Russian bureaucracy. Uh, thousands of people <clears throat> have lost the possibility uh, to earn money, has lost the, the access to the body of, uh, of the President Putin because they, they are not fighting. On, now only those who are on the front line have the possibility to influence the process. All, only those who are fighting mm. can, can have a, an opportunity to talk to Putin directly. So a lot of people, uh, uh, all those people I've called collective Putin mm -hmm. uh, in my book, All the Kremlin's Men, they have lost the connection with the real Putin. So the only way for them to do something, to prove that they are needed, is to, to organize that that uh, election, that re-election campaign for Putin, to make it uh, really perfect, to, uh, to, um, to organize uh, some kind of competition to prove that there is still a uh, dangerous opposition that needs to be eliminated, to start fighting that imaginary opposition, to uh, to send thousands of people in, in prison, um, to organize new wave of terror for the sake of the victorious mm. success of those uh, presidential elections. So, so, so it's so it's really needed by by so many people. So, the, so it's and bureaucratically they, and, and ritualistically needed. So you would say it's yeah. bureaucratically and ritualistically Absolutely. necessary. Absolutely. That's interesting. Yes. I'm not, that, that, that's an interesting way to look at it. Cost you your 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 response because well, I mean, this is interesting. I don't think we I mean, actually. I do not think we, you disagree uh, well, that much. Basically, I do not think we have a we have a BBC situation <laughs> now because <laughs> what I'm saying is that we have rumors that Patrushev is thinking about it. These rumors may be completely untrue, as I said. Maybe Patrushev doesn't even know it. Uh, what I'm saying is that the quality of the rumors, the content of the rumors, is such that it strikes me they all may be completely false, as a lot of rumors in 1995 were false. Right. Or 96. And 1999. Before Yeltsin's, Yeltsin's uh, second election. And 1999, by the way. And in 1999. Uh, in 1999 was much more ominous with explosions yes. and stuff like that. But uh, now probably yes, too. But what I want to say is that the quality of the rumors to me and the content of the rumors shows that this is a system in crisis. It, as I said, it may survive the crisis. It, they, they may have these so-called elections in which Putin will again win. Ha ha. But what I say is that I think the atmosphere has changed. Mm. And this is all happening. This is all contingent on things that are happening on the battlefield in Ukraine. I mean, imagine if Ukraine's spring offensive is successful. Imagine they have a successful push towards Melitopol or Mariupol and divide Russian forces. And it really looks like Ukraine can like push Russian forces out of the Donbass. That, and I'm not saying that is going to happen, but I would not rule that out. Um, a lot of military analysts who are a lot smarter than me think that is a very real possibility. And if that happens, that's going to not just have effects in Ukraine, um, it's going to have it's going to reverberate in the Russian elite. Like, Mikhail, what uh, what would the effect internally in Russia of a successful Ukrainian of counteroffensive that splits the Russian forces and makes it look like Ukraine can take back the Donbass? What effect would that have in Moscow? No, I, I think that that Putin is still safe. Putin is still controlling the propaganda. And and I cannot imagine the moment when uh, when Russian propaganda would admit the fact that that Russian troops were defeated. Um, it's it's like they, they they can pretend that they are still winning and everything goes according to the plan as as much as they can. And so it's easy. It's easy to pretend that that was uh, that was the initial plan to give uh, Mariupol back to the Ukrainians. Uh, but definitely there is the, the huge difference be between the last year, uh, between the like the uh, Russia before um, fall uh, 2022 is, is now that there, there is some political force that that could be considered to be the potential opposition. And that uh, that uh, imperialist uh, right wing mm -hmm. hardcore uh, redneck right. um, groups of people who want uh, um, quick victory, bloody victory, and uh, the military parade on on Khrushchev, they they have the 
the symbolic um, head as Evgeny Prigozhin. Mm -hmm. uh, we're still unclear if he's uh, manipulated by by Putin or has become independent and that that he's now alive. Um, but he he seems very he seems really to be a person who who has been a puppet for all of his right. life and now he's he's on his own uh -huh. and he and he's loving it so so we re we we really seem to have that strange situation uh for many years we had only one politician uh, uh in russia to, to oppose putin and that was alexei navalny mm -hmm. from the democratic uh, um camp and now it seems like that there is the second potential opposition leader from the fascist camp and uh the moment when 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 russian forces are uh, severely beaten by by ukrainian forces that camp would demand mm. uh evgeny prigozhin to lead it so that would be a potentially um uneasy situation that's um it now we, has do, now we do have now we do have yes. the bbc finally. man finally. bbc has got to be finally paying me royalties man moment. all the advertising we're giving them <laughs> go ahead cost uh look <laughs> prigozhin as far as i understand is very heavily dependent on the russian army for his logistics for the recruitment for ammunition for a lot of stuff he's not an independent figure in this respect he's very much dependent on other people whether he has agreement or has disagreement with uh with shoigu or whoever else is besides the point he's very very heavily dependent on the russian armed forces to bring his men to battle into battle and to uh supply them so I do not believe that he can be some kind of independent player that will suddenly... But I wasn't speaking about that. I wasn't speaking about his military independence. I was speaking about his ambitions. Political, political ambitions. He is oh, well, He may have any ambition, that, but, but then if, if he really believes, if he really believes he can come to power in Russia just after, um, in case the Russian army loses some kind of major battle and someone everyone suddenly rushing to him and saying oh well please lead us well then i think he's really deceiving himself frankly speaking uh, i think he's really deceiving himself i do not yes, think please. that this huge bureaucracy will suddenly say oh yeah let's have this wonderful maverick restaurateur uh, <laughs> to, to lead us into battle i don't i do think well, there will call out people who will be actually unwilling to have any kind of further battle the fact that we're actually having this conversation, which about a year ago would have been ridiculous, it tells me something. Now, I don't know which of you are right. Um, I guess time will tell. But the fact that we're actually having this conversation, to me, is really, really, really telling. We're, we're, I'm watching the time, and I want to move into the second half in a moment, because we want to talk about uh, the, the arrest of American journalist Ivan Garskovich. But I did want to circle back to one thing. Um, the parallels with the assassination of Daria Dugina uh, back in August. Are there parallels? Is this, is, this another, is this another data point in the same, in the same mosaic, or is this something entire, entirely different? Do, you, do, do either of you have any thoughts on that? I think there is only one resemblance, uh, that the importance of uh, Vladimir Tatarsky is a bit a bit similar to the importance of Daria Dugina mm -hmm. and her father. So uh, unfortunately, um, Alexander Dugin is considered to be a huge and influential figure by the by the Russian specialist by but by the specialists on Russia outside of the country. In the West. No, I agree with you about yes. that, Mikhail. Yes. I, I think his, his importance in, is way over inflated. In the West, yes, yes. Yeah, Dugin is not considered to be anything domestically he's not close to kremlin he is not influential he was not um the mastermind of the ukrainian invasion and his um his uh, fact is minimal so it yeah and once again we we have the assassination of uh, of of someone of a very little importance but in those terms uh uh tatarsky is is a more important person because he's close to Prigozhin and Daria Dugin mm. was was close to her father, who is no one. Uh, so you don't you don't see any kind of uh, 
logic or intrigue behind the Daria Dugan uh, assassination that has anything to do, or, or which was apparently an attempt in her father's life, and, and she and she she was uh, collateral damage. But I mean, you don't see anything similar to what we were talking about regarding the Tatarsky assassination. That if this could be, there could be something behind this, some intrigue behind this. I think I think there should be different persons, different groups behind. Uh, those two assassinations, okay. Okay. and so no, no, no connection could mm. could be found. I'm, I'm okay. sure. Costia, your and thoughts? I w- oh, good. Yeah, I agree. I actually think that uh, Daria Duga. Well, look, we do not know right uh, whether really it was an attempt to kill Daria Dugina or her father. Mm-hmm. I think that, frankly speaking where I will probably disagree uh, or rather agree only partially with Mikhail. Uh, if it was Dugin, if Dugin was killed symbolically, no matter what the real influence of Dugin is, symbolically it would have been an extremely yes. uh, sort of um, high-profile assassination. Yeah. Uh, but uh, otherwise, uh, I do not see any kind of um, link I do agree that behind this, uh, these two the two explosions are two completely different sets of people. Mm, okay. And uh, even if it's the the same set of people, notionally, when it's do, do they things. point to similar fissures in the elite? Types. I mean, the, the the interesting thing you you mentioned you mentioned that we couldn't we wouldn't be having this conversation if it was like a year ago. I would say even a few months ago we wouldn't be right. having this no, conversation. No, you're right. You're right. Uh, the Time, uh, the moment when uh, Daria Dugina was killed, is like ancient history. We might as well discuss, uh, you know, the first Congress of People's Deputies in 1989. It would be pretty much the same now. Uh, because things are moving very fast. Yes. And they will continue to move very fast and probably very unexpectedly. But I would, well, one thing I would insist on is that the way this war was prosecuted incompetently uh, by the Putin regime of course, is giving thoughts to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Whether these people are able to act on these thoughts, mm-hmm. or they will be cowed right. into submission, it's a different question. But I'm sure that this this year was uh, absolutely devastating to at least, I would say, the thinking part of the Russian political yeah. class, which may be, by the way, a, 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 a small minority. Maybe mm-hmm. others do deceive them. Uh, sorry, maybe others do deceive themselves, but uh, whoever is, whoever remains there, uh, who still has some kind of, um, uh, you know, faculties left intact, they can't. Right. Uh, but see that this is a disaster. And one has to ask how much of the thinking part of the Russian uh, elite is left in Russia, because um, mo- most of you have uh, have emigrated. And that's a good way to, uh, to segue. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at the recent arrest of Wall Street Journal correspondent Ivan Gershkovich and what it signifies about the Kremlin's thinking as its war in Ukraine drags on and the conflict with the West deepens. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, one of my favorite cities in the world, is my old friend Konstantin Eggert, a columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and a former director of the BBC's Russian service. And joining us from Germany's awesome capital of Berlin, another one of my favorite cities in the world, is Michael. Kyle Zegar, a columnist for Der Spiegel, then the founding editor-in-chief of the Russian TV news channel Dost, and author of the must-read book All the Kremlin's Men. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power of Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And at least for now, you can keep following us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин нас никто не слушал. Привет. Это Навальный. Я уже свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. So for the first time since 1986, Russia has charged an American journalist with espionage. 
Ivan Gershkovich, the, Ru- the Russia correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, was arrested on March 30th. And in one sense, Gershkovich has joined a long list of U.S. citizens who have effectively been taken hostage by the Kremlin. The list includes Trevor Reed, who was arrested in August 2019 and was exchanged for a Russian cocaine trafficker serving time in U.S. federal prison, and Brittany Griner, who was arrested in February 2022 and who was exchanged for the notorious arms trafficker Victor Boat. It also includes Paul Whelan, who was arrested and charged with espionage in December 2018 and remains in custody. Two other American citizens, Sarah Krivnik and Mark Fogel, also remain in Russian custody. But Ivan Gershkovich is the first accredited American journalist to be arrested and charged with espionage since the case of Nicholas Donilov way back in 1986, when I was a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed graduate student who still had a full head of hair. Um, Kostya, is this a major escalation in Putin's war on the West? How do you see the Gershkovich arrest? Well, look, there are several reasons why this could have happened. And um, I think that uh, what we see is an attempt to maybe tell the world, because this happened soon after uh, Putin was uh, uh, designated Mm -hmm. uh, uh, suspect uh, in uh, uh, war crimes by the International Criminal Court. Uh, Maybe it's his way of responding, saying, well, you know, all bets are off now. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I would say that um, there is another uh, possibility, and this possibility is a possibility of an exchange of someone who the Russians do not want to land in the United States. And this is a man uh, that uh, went as far as I remember for many, many years uh, by the Brazilian surname and ID card of, uh, I think, Ferreira, something like that, whose real name turned out to be Cherkasov, yep. surname, rather. This is the and first thing I thought of. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, uh, and um, and uh, this is someone who came very close uh, to embed himself, actually, in the International Court in The Hague. Mm-hmm. Look, I think that um, it's... Maybe a way of showing to the world that you know Putin doesn't care about uh, a warrant, arrest warrant issued against him by the International Criminal Court. So he's adding another sort of gesture uh, to his repertoire of gestures. You know, I don't care. I do what I want. But frankly speaking, I think he could restrict a foreigner usually for some very, very specific reason. So Putin is replenishing his hostage uh, his hostage bank, which now has only one person of, well, I would say certain interest for the United States government, and that is the former Marine Paul Whelan, who's serving a 16-year uh, sentence in Russia, accused of espionage. What I would say, and probably it's just a hypothesis, the, the 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 reason is really something much more practical. Last year, uh, Brazilian authorities um, arrested, charged, tried, and uh, convicted uh, someone who went for many many years under the surname of Ferreira, Victor Müller Ferreira, I think, and carried the Brazilian passport. Well, in fact, as as was proven, he was a Russian illegal by the name of Sergei Cherkasov who was embedding himself for years uh, using a fake Brazilian identity. And who studied in Washington. Uh, Yes, he studied in Johns Hopkins in Washington. He nearly got uh, basically a job in the International Court in The Hague, and that's where it turned out that the FBI had their suspicions. They notified the Dutch. Uh, The Dutch basically put him on a plane to Brazil, where he was arrested, charged with illegal using... Uh, fake documents and basically uh, impersonating someone and put locked up for 15 years. But the United States want him Mm -hmm. to be tried in the U.S., but they want him to be extradited. And I think that probably we're dealing with a situation in which Russia is adding a very valuable hostage to a very visible, highly high-profile hostage to its hostage bank. Mm -hmm. Uh, to 
exchange for Cherkasov in case the Brazilians render him uh, to the Americans. Mm -hmm. Because this is an operative from inside the system who can tell a lot of things and sing a lot of songs to the Americans. Mm -hmm. I think that now what we see Secretary Blinken saying that uh, basically uh, our colleague Gershkovich will be designated as kind of unlawfully detained, which means mm -hmm. that he'll be essentially he'll be given a priority mm -hmm. among the Americans that you know, by their time in different um, in different uh, capacity in different prisons uh, around the world. And this to me shows that something may be afoot because I have no other than a very practical explanation for this action. Moreover, Paul Whelan, who was, uh, I think uh, he was jailed about a year or two years 20, ago. 2018. Oh, 2018, even more. End of 2018. Uh, it seems that the Americans did not show enough interest in him. And other people of interest uh, for Putin, they serve their time or they are being held on suspicion in other jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. For example, Viktor Krasikov, the, right. sorry, Vadim Krasikov, the man who assassinated the uh, Chechen in uh, yeah. mini warlord Pangoshvili in, 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 uh, in Berlin while well, he's serving time in Germany. And you, I mean, yes, the Americans may ask the Germans, but it's a much more cumbersome right. process. So I think we're, what we see is a preparation of a major swap. Uh, frankly, uh, I think that Putin wouldn't want to have uh, uh, a US journalist uh, for years in jail. Yeah. I think something is a flip. No, no, I, I would agree with that, Kostya. I mean, Gershkovich is a very prominent journalist. He has a stellar reputation. His colleagues from across the U.S. media are kind of rallying behind him. I mean, I, 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 I've read his work. He's, he's, he's an excellent journalist. Um, and there is going to be pressure to get him out. Mikhail, what are your thoughts on this? You know, uh, uh, unfortunately, I agree with, uh, with Kostya. And I can add um, another detail just about a week before uh, the arrest of uh, Ivan, Ger uh, Ivan Gershkovich, uh, there was a Russian couple, or it was Argentinian couple in Slovenia, but they, they were blamed for being Russian undercover agents, um, arrested in, the, in, in Ljubljana. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the, their names were Maria Meyer and Ludwig Gish. So uh, uh, there is also two more Russian undercover spies uh, to be to be trained and to to uh, to be re returned home. Um, in addition to to that Brazilian guy, so really uh, Vladimir Putin needs to have his hostage bank um, to increase it. So uh, and uh, actually, yes, he he needs he needs more hostages, and I'm afraid that. That that could be not the end of the story because yeah. he doesn't care. He doesn't care about any kind of uh, relationships with uh, with the West, mm, and he needs he, his people back. So so we apparently are entering a time when it's best for not just Americans but Westerners in general to stay the hell out of Russia, right? I mean, this is like even even in the Soviet Union, if you were an accredited Western journalist, with the exception of Nicholas Donilov. You were safe. Um, you were safe. Um, and in the post-Soviet period, you were very safe. I, I, I worked as an accredited foreign journalist in Moscow for many years. Um, you, you were safe if you had that Mead accreditation. Um, now... Yes, because, Le because Leonid Brezhnev cared about the West. Uh, he cared about the, the warm relationships with uh, Nixon and uh, Ford and uh, even Carter. Uh, and... And now President Putin doesn't doesn't have to to care about that. Uh, he knows that uh, if only Donald Trump is back, uh, he will be able to organize that exchange of the hostages, and that that will would be quickly and effective for both sides. And he doesn't need that uh, detente uh, with uh, with Joe Biden. 
right. So this so this basically signifies that basically the gloves are off. Um, we're basically hit the final the final break between Russia and the West. Westerners just stay the hell out of Russia because there you there is a good chance you're going to be taken hostage, and that basically there is a specific reason why 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 this journalist was taken. I think I truly do think Kostya, you hit it on the head here because that this is the first thing that crossed my mind. I had just read the article in the New York Times about this, and then no sooner like the next day than I saw the the arrest of Gershkovich in Moscow. Um, we're bumping up against the end. Uh, do either of you have any last thoughts before we wrap it up for this week? And I, I know it's late in Berlin. It's later in uh, Vilnius. Um, do you guys have any last thoughts before we wrap it up for the week? This was a great discussion. Well, um, I think that uh, we should all be watching uh, very, very carefully uh, what will be going on uh in uh, the run-up to the NATO summit, mm-hmm. because uh, and maybe we'll dedicate another podcast yes. to, to that. But uh, I do think that uh, Putin will be trying to spoil the party. Oh yeah, no. Absolutely. And uh, frankly, another thing that will have a huge impact on Putin's uh, on Putin's whatever remains of Putin's foreign policy is, of course, May fifteenth. Elections in Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, presidential and parliamentary, they're happening simultaneously. Uh, I do think that if miraculously Erdogan is, and his party are out, then it will complicate things uh, for Putin. So I would say we should be looking forward for months of very important international developments. Yeah, no, we're going to have plenty to, to talk and about. And I must add that that I'm uh, really amused uh, when watching how Russian propaganda reacts to the arrest of Donald Trump. That's that's <laughs> probably the biggest news and the the most um, important news for for Russian uh, uh, news bulletins for months. And uh, the hopes for for Donald Trump to be back are rising. And actually. All, all Russian pro-Putin elite is 100% sure that, that he's going to be uh, back in the White House and the things are going to change. Mm, that's it. Yeah, I have not yet watched any of the Russian reaction to this. I've been kind of busy watching the, the U.S. reaction, but I'll, I'll be sure to take, take a look at that. All right, well, that's all we have time for today. We'll wrap it up. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlene's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from across the Atlantic in Lithuania's wonderful capital city, Vilnius, is my old friend, Konstantin Egert, a con- columnist on Russian affairs for Deutsche Welle and the former director of the BBC's Russian service. And joining us from Germany's awesome capital city of Berlin has been Mikhail Zigar, a columnist for Der Spiegel, founding editor and chief of Russia, the Russian news TV channel Dusht, and author of the must-read book, All the Kremlin's Men. Gentlemen, thank you for an enlightening discussion and for making all of us a whole hell of a lot smarter. Thank, thank you, Brian. Brian. And, also like, and also like to thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual c- control room, keeping all the lights on and all the, uh, all the complicated machines well-oiled in and working order throughout our discussion. And Zachary Bell handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us for now on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team. 